Hi, Charlotte. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi. I'm, I have to tell you, and you, th- I, you know this, I'm very excited to do this because I, I really love this newsletter. It's <laughs> the newsletter so that, that brought me to newsletters. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I, newsletters are difficult. I think every, I'm signed up to so many. I logged into Substack yesterday because I was getting all these emails about like someone trying to, I think someone was trying to change my password and like hack my newsletter yesterday, which was weird. But I was, I logged into my account and I was looked at, I'm subscribed to like so many newsletters and I don't know if I'm, I guess a lot of them aren't updated regularly. So that's not so hard to keep up with. But I was like, what am I doing? Like, is everyone's inbox like this now? I guess so. I'm trying to keep it to a point where I'm subscribed to a number where I'm actually able to read all of them because I know me and I know if I oversubscribe yeah. at some point, I'll stop reading any of them. That's like my how yeah. my brain will function. So <laughs> I've so far been very, you know, limited, but, you know, I went from really from not reading them to realizing that this is where, at least for me, especially with food writing, I'm getting most of the stuff I most want to read right now. So, which is amazing. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I think a lot of people are saying that, which is nice about about food writing specifically. Um but yeah. Uh <laughs> Well, can you tell can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yes. Um I grew up in New York City, specifically on the Upper East Side, which at some point I started referring to as Stepford Land. Um and I'm 45. So, we're this is like we're talking like 1980s Upper East Side, which it's always been pretty waspy, but it was probably even waspier then than it is now. And I don't, it's not really a complaint. It's more, that's more an observation because I, you know, it was a very privileged, safe space to grow up. Um, And I was really lucky to spend my childhood there. And I think just to have lived in New York City as a child with that kind of privilege was, I mean, That's not, you know, that's a rare thing. That's a gift. Um, That neighborhood, by the way, is also not known for its restaurants or food. And I come from a family that is, one, obsessed with food, and two, completely in love with restaurants. Um, And also, in the land of the wasps, we're Jewish. So, and I don't know if if that, if the obsession with food, some people would argue, and a Jewish thing is related, but maybe it is throwing it out there. Um, but the, the funny thing is I didn't actually grow up with a lot of traditional Jewish food, um, unless you count like Nova and smoked sturgeon and bagels. Seriously. My mom cooked and she still cooks. Like she cooks like a lot and she does it by choice. Almost. I think it's like an outlet for her. Um, but she does not cook Jewish food like resolutely. Almost antagonistically, like like resistant, like deliberate. She she didn't really grow up with it, and she I mean she hates it. Like she really doesn't like it. Um, and I think my dad has nostalgic feelings about it, but since he's not the one cooking, he kind of can't really do anything <laughs> about that. So that that's just how that goes. Um, so I'm th- like she cooked from from Julia Child's books, um, but really I think more. James Beard, Craig Claiborne, some of the, she had the Time Life cookbooks and she cooked out of those. And she was always, my mom was a huge recipe terror. So, and she saved a lot of them. So she had like, like has yellowed pages from the New York Times and Gourmet. Um, 
And then I feel like when the silver palette came out in the early 80s, like I feel like that changed everything, you know. And then also we went to restaurants all the time. Um, my younger brother's four years younger than I am. And I, I think once we were old enough to be taken to restaurants, they they took us. So I have these incredible memories of like on a Sunday night going downtown to the Odeon in Tribeca and being maybe five or something and my my brother being in a high chair and they had I, I don't know if they still do this but they they had um paper over the tablecloths and they would put crayons down at every table so you could draw so I just I remember going I remember drawing with crayons and having like a hamburger and french fries and having no clue obviously at that age that it was this really cool place where Andy Warhol was hanging out with his friends. Like I obviously was oblivious to that. I just thought it was, you know, awesome. And so I have a lot of, of memories like that. And a lot of the restaurants that I remember don't exist anymore, but then some do like the Odeon still does. So yeah, I had, I had a pretty well-rounded in terms of, of food um childhood but not definitely not in terms of the cultural embedding not a lot from from my own eastern european jewish heritage well what are the jewish foods your mom didn't like that your dad does have nostalgic feelings for i honestly i actually it's any (laughs) any traditional jewish food but whether or not my dad likes them I'm not even sure it was more the point actually he he does he's one of those people who likes gefilte fish that's their <laughs> that's an example she doesn't make chicken soup not into matzo balls not into chicken soup doesn't yeah it has nothing to do with gefilte fish um she doesn't make like I I was with them this last weekend and I made my dad start reminding me the difference between Jewish foods because I literally I'm like wait dad what's the difference between <laughs> I was like what's kreplock again what's like vernish guess like I I really I still to this day get this stuff confused I hadn't had kugel until I went to college and someone made a kugel and I was like oh this this is kugel like I just I didn't I didn't know you know there were certain things where we would have seder at my grandparents house so I guess there I would have some stuff but like yeah I just really you know, the food I hate most of all, this has nothing to do with my mom, but I hate herring. Like I hate it. It makes me cry when I eat it. Like I have like a viscerally bad reaction to it. So so, yeah, those are, those are some Jewish foods. Like I, we never had, um, my mom has this, this memory of, she always says she was a juvenile delinquent in Hebrew school and she got in trouble for smearing humantashin on the toilet seats in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like I, I also didn't grow up with Jewish pastry in particular like right. I hadn't really had a babka until babkas became trendy a few years ago um so it's interesting because it's not it's not like I had none of it but the version I had of it was probably not traditional and in some cases, it was a really long time until I had it. Another great example, my mom would make latkes, but she made them with prosciutto in them. So then I don't even know if they're oh. latkes anymore at that point. <laughs> yeah, they were great. But like, you know, it kind of defeats the, the purpose. 
<laughs> of the Jewishness of the whole endeavor at that point. So I don't, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I was aware, you know, I went to him, I was, my dad made me go to Hebrew school from like age five to I feel like I was still going in like 10th grade or something ridiculous and then finally protested. But, you know, so I had the education and I had a very strong awareness culturally, but food wise, no. That's Just so interesting. Kind of a void. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it is. I think it's really interesting too, um, especially yeah. because I feel like Jewish food has become sort of... It, I mean, whether or not it's Jewish, that's a whole sidebar conversation, right? Because right? I think this this sort of fixation on, in some ways, Eastern European Ashkenazi food, but also um, Sephardic and Israeli food, but the, but the conflation of Israeli food with Middle Eastern food, and then the question of how, you know, how original actually is Israeli food to Israel, that's like a, a whole, you know, separate thing, right. but that sort of surge of interest in that food in the last few years and then the amount of food writing that has been dedicated to it as a food writer who's Jewish that's been very interesting for me to see because I don't have that same connection to most of those foods right right I I grew up on babka which is funny that you you didn't have it until yeah, it was trendy. Yeah. I remember when it got trendy. I was like, oh, I I've loved babka my whole life. Like, <laughs> and like, yeah, I never you're like, what is it. this? <laughs> I never thought of it. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know. I was like a kid, so it's like I just this is delicious, you know, bread. I'm and I grew up with like challah French toast and stuff like that too. But I think I mean that's yeah. just like a that's just what happens when you live on Long Island, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But so, all right. So I didn't plan to talk about this, but it's timely. Um, and, you know, the James Beard Awards are trying to kind of deal with themselves, but they're not doing a very good job. Um, oh. And <laughs> I addressed this in Monday's newsletter, which we're talking about actually before it comes out. But what, yeah, what is the deal with the James Beard Awards, you know, and, and how do you, how are you viewing the current situation? Um. Well... I decided that the James Beard Awards were not for me. Let me just say it that way before I before I go like all out in my rage and you know um when I wrote Skirt Steak because first of all I interviewed enough women chefs who you know talked about their frustrations with it and you just realized how the criteria and the rules were set up in such a way that you were going to have a really homogenous pool of both nominees, but, but also winners. Like you just saw how it was preventing people from getting recognition in a lot of ways. And there, and there was even stuff, I mean, for me, the thing that was the most kind of telling um, was finding out that so you know how you have um in each category how many i forget how many restaurants are nominated which I'll, again this is this is sort of a random thing but i always think it's weird that the chef gets nominated in the but but, it, but it's for a restaurant it's sort of like right. why why don't the restaurants just get nominated and then the entire team the staff they collectively get that award. You know what I mean? Like right. it's it's weird to me, but um, 
Anyway, in the category of the regional, but also the national ones where it's those the restaurants and then you're supposed to vote, what I learned and couldn't get over, and I still can't get over this because I don't think it's changed. And this is before we even get to what went on this year and you know, trying to redo the election and rig it so that it, it turns out looking more, and I'm going to put in quotes, politically correct, because the, again, the criteria have set it up so that demographically uh, people are already like primed to win. But even in a sense, before you get to that, you have this category. It used to be that you didn't have to go to any of the restaurants to vote for them in a category. So you could be from any part of the country. You could have heard of a restaurant in a category in a different region. And you could just be like, well, I'm going to vote for that because all my friends say it's really good. I mean, that's already ludicrous. Next phase of this, where they improve things and they're really proud of themselves when they changed this. And I think it happened a few years before I wrote Skirt Steak. The new rule was that oh, no, wait, okay, no, you have to have eaten at the restaurant to vote for it. Um, okay, fine, except <laughs> if you think about it, if you're voting in a category where you're saying this is the best of this category and you haven't been to all the restaurants in that category, how does your vote count in any way, right? If you've only been right. to the one you voted for, how do you know that's <laughs> the best one in the group? I mean, it's, it's truly just that. So let's look at that. Like that's something that's really small in a sense but based in logic. And to me, the logic in that was already so warped that I was like, oh my, oh my God, like, what is this? What is this system? And then you could start to see if you were more cynical, how that would start to play out if you're talking about a region in the country that is, is sort of less dense with traveling voters, right? And right. so let's look at like the Midwest and let's think about how many in the, in that category, how many of those restaurants, maybe probably they're going to be dominated by Chicago. And then you're going to have like a few outliers, the number of people who even get to the non-Chicago restaurants. And then the number of people who go to Chicago and which of those restaurants do they go to? Probably the ones they heard of, probably the ones that they, have, they know publicists at. Right. So there's right. there's it becomes rigged and it really is a pop. You know, people always say that that it's a popularity contest. And you're like, OK, but what exactly does that mean? This is a clear case where it's very easy for it to be a popularity contest. And by the way, it really operates on an honor system. So no one's checking to make sure that you went to the restaurant you voted for anyway. I don't think you have to show your receipts. And frankly, since I think a lot of those meals get comped. <laughs> There probably wouldn't yeah. be receipts anyway. So learning that that was the case and learning that then, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, this thing is a sham, right? Yeah. And so then, then we have everything that's happened in the past few years, like the sort of from the moments of them patting themselves on the back for their seeming progressiveness, which was like barely a sign of even, right. you know, just catching up to the times. And now we have what's happening now. And I'm just like, guys, just get honestly cancel the whole thing. Cancel yeah. the whole thing because <laughs> the foundation is already rotten. You know, like you you would have to, aside from the fact that I'm not, I again, I'm not an awards person. So I'm not sure I believe in, in this giving out awards to restaurants in this way in the first place. 
It's right. just like clearly this system. Um, I also kind of, you know, this the restaurant committee releasing a statement. To me, that committee's been operating for years and years in this clearly busted system. And it's like only now they finally decided to release a statement about, you know, their their outrage. Um, I don't know. To me, that that almost looked more like a damage control press release than anything else, um, which, again, maybe that's cynical. But, yeah, I just I'm just like we don't there have been too many problems with this system. And actually, I think there have been enough problems with the foundation that I, at this point, I'm just like, people, let's close it down. <laughs> let's walk away. I have lots of ideas if you're all hell-bent on having restaurant awards for how you might reconsider going forward running them. I have similarly ideas for the media awards. Happy to give them away for free. Or yes, maybe just no awards. I don't know. I want to know what you think. I mean, you're probably your- I don't want awards. Yeah, no, please, like, no in, awards. At all. No awards. <laughs> I mean, for me, like, it's just, it's been such an- obnoxious thing to deal with as a writer as a food writer yeah. because you as a freelancer especially it's like okay I have to pay $150 to submit a piece and I'm only going to be able to pick one piece and then I have to like maybe strategically consider which category I can uh, submit to to have the most chance of being nominated. And like I've submitted twice. I've submitted um, my in-personal essay a few years ago when I wrote a, about oysters for Hazlitt and I submitted last year, I guess, yeah, for this, what would have been this year, um, a big, like a, a big three-part piece on um, Puerto Rican foodways. Um, and neither time was I nominated. Um, but, and so it just feels really bad. And I, I think everyone just feels really bad when it's like, I paid money to just for nothing yeah. to this organization. And like, and it's not, it's, I mean, because it's just, you're hanging all these hopes of stability on the idea of winning the award you know it's like if I had a James Beard award would I have gotten a bigger advance for my book what from probably a bigger publisher yeah sure probably and like that's why we care about this and like that's the only reason is because and I think Tunde Wei talked about this in his interview with Helen Rosner for the New Yorker but like we care about these sorts of things because we have to because like the continued attention yeah. means we have continued stability in our work and like the only way we can do work is with the support to do it and so the false like weird system and I was a judge too for journalism this year in a subcategory and it was a really dumb experience frankly it was like you're <laughs> rating all these pieces like have you judged the journalism awards before? No, I actually have. I have a, a good when you're when I have a good story about this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and like for me again, also I was like I was even though I think these things are stupid. At the same time, I was like I'm honored, I guess, to be included in this, you know. And yeah. so I I I'm like all right, sure, I'll do it. Like I want to be included, and. Uh, yeah, it's just, ugh. Um, but yeah, it's like rating people's work at one to ten. In the category I was a judge for, nothing I rated highly was a, a, a finalist. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I also I think there's an NDA involved, so I'm not going to talk about any more of it. But at this, there's also I in 2018 held 
like I produced kind of with a friend um, a dinner at the James Beard house where we brought four chefs from Puerto Rico to cook like a Christmas dinner or whatever. And it was like one of the worst experiences of my life because (laughs) I mean, like it was fun and I liked it. And it was like, we were doing this sort of as a, as a, because kind of to demand attention for these chefs um, who weren't getting attention um, uh, because people, because of the way people perceive Puerto Rican food and who's a Puerto Rican chef. And so um, we did this dinner. We had this, you know, really like exhausting experience of basically just doing a fundraiser for this organization. And, um, you know, in the end, I guess it paid off because, you know, the next year, one of the chefs was a semifinalist. Um, and then the next, the, the year after two chefs who participated were semifinalists for best chef South. And, you know, and then one of the chefs who participated was the best new chef for food and wine. And it's like, but then you just see so clearly how the system works, yeah. which is, and it's so gross because it's like, you know, why were why wouldn't these chefs have gotten attention without this fundraiser for this organization? Like, and I always say this, um, the, like the James Beard foundation extorts the industries it purports to be an advocate for, you know, it extorts restaurants and chefs and it extorts writers for, for money in the hopes that they will, you know, get an accolade that will um, ensure them continued and the fear, <laughs> like, and also the fear. Yeah, like what fear. I, what I, what I really saw in Skirt Steak was that there was this fear that if you don't participate, that then somehow you are making yourself ineligible for any kind right. of acknowledgement, and so you feel like you have to say yes, you know, like that. And and that was really, really hard to see. It was like this is awful. I mean, this is like. They're just saying yes because they're terrified, you know, that right. this may be their only chance to ever be considered. Yeah. And I and that was really hard. That was really hard to see. I, you know, when I when I did Skirt Steak, when I wrote the chapter on awards, I kind of sat myself down and I was like, you know, you realize if you write this chapter, that's probably gonna be it for you with the beards. Like I I think that I, I didn't hold out much hope after everything that I learned that it was an organization that if you kind of laid any of the reality bare, that you would then be rewarded in some way. So, and it was, I just remember thinking, well, like, do you not want to have the chapter in the book or do you want to have the chapter in the book? And thinking I'd rather have the chapter and, and know that like, that I did that, you know, than be worrying about this and also now that I see how this works at least on the restaurant side it doesn't make me feel that good about the media side anyway so I don't care if I never get an award from this foundation and that was how I proceeded and there was something really freeing in it because it was it was almost like I exempted myself from being allowed to care you know what I mean? But it also, I definitely saw, like, I saw what it did for writers who won. I saw all of that stuff. Um, like, this is my, my my funny story about that, um, which is that, well, two, I guess, funny stories. But the first was right before Skirt State came out. So the galleys had gone out, like the, those advanced reader copies had gone out. I got an email from a friend of mine who was on the, the restaurant committee 
asking me if I would like to join. And I was like, I don't think this person has read my book like at all. And and <laughs> I, I replied saying, well, I have a lot of like negative feelings about it. And I think the only way I would want to join would be if I felt like I could actually make some kind of real difference because otherwise, why would I do it? And I said, but have you read the galley of my book? Cause I feel like, I feel probably like you should read it before you ask me this, you know, like I just felt like, and sort of as like a full disclosure thing that like probably, you know, this person or someone on the committee, maybe they all should have read the book. And so, you know, the response was, Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, let, let us get back to you. And a few weeks went by and then I got this email saying, Oh, you know what, Charlotte, <laughs> we're thinking that because, you know, you have a book coming out and you're going to be on book tour and everything, it's probably not the right time for you to join the restaurant committee. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's funny because the one time that someone can actually get to all those restaurants across the country would be on a book tour. So I see what's happening here. I see now that you've seen the book. <laughs> And you realize I cannot be on the committee and that's cool. And we'll leave it here. And that is my, that is my favorite personal James Beard story. Um, I did not, I, after this made a point of never submitting my work, like I refused. And it's not to say, I know, I think my, I have editors who I think did submit my work. So I'm not, not going to pretend that like, you know, my work wasn't out there to be nominated. And it was really, uh, Women on Food was the first time that I submitted because I wanted to make sure that the contributors to that book got whatever full possible credit and attention and visibility they could from working on that project. So, um, you know, Abrams was the publisher and they would only submit, I think they submitted the book as a whole. And then they would, they said they would submit three essays. And I was like, I will, I will personally then make sure that if anyone else, in addition to three, if you have more than three people who want their essays submitted, I will get that done. Um, so I ended up submitting, I think, three in addition to the three that they submitted. And the really, the interesting thing was it was the first, because it was the first time I was submitting, it, it was also the first time I really had to start thinking about the categories and I realized how limiting they were. You know, it, there's, there's such a, a kind of homogenization that happens with these awards. Um, not just in the sense that I think, writers see what wins. And then I think they try and write things that look similar to that, whether it's in tone or structure. But it's also that the categories, anything that's a hybrid almost doesn't fit. It's like, well, where are you going to put this? Because there were essays in Women on Food, and it was very deliberate. And it's what I loved so much about them, that you, you would look at it and you would have to say, well, it's both. You know, it's a travel essay it's also about restaurants or it's personal writing but it's also a profile so it became this whole thing of like I don't even know what category to submit this to and I found that really limiting and also really interesting because to me as a reader the most interesting stuff that I'm reading now doesn't fit categories so that again it's like what do those awards you know, and, and I also, something I realized, and I, I realized it again, because, you know, Women on Food was nominated, which I was so happy for the book, and I was so happy for everyone in it, but I was actually really not happy for myself. I had a very strange reaction. Um, I started crying 
and it wasn't happy tears. It was, I cried out of frustration and I had a really hard time articulating why I was crying. Um, and I realized, yeah, I was frustrated. I felt angry. I felt sort of like, first of all, I think that those awards are more about the person who wrote the work than the work. And I think honestly that the awards, if you're going to give them out, should be about the work. And I think it's always collaborative. Um, and I really thought about that for, for like for this book, but I also realized that I was getting congratulated by people I hadn't heard from. And I don't know how long I had texts on my phone where I didn't know who the people were being like, congratulations, this is great. And I was like, what, what is this? Like, why is it that suddenly I felt like suddenly other people thought I was validated because I'd been nominated for this thing. And meanwhile, I'd been working for so many years doing my thing, doing stuff that I was proud of just because I was proud of it. And it was suddenly not until I got this nomination that it seemed like people paid attention. And I, and that really... It really annoyed me. I don't know. That's a very re weird reaction to have. And again, like I was really proud on behalf of the book, but just like as a personal thing, something about it really upset me, um, which is, I know that's really weird. You recently mentioned to me that you would write Skirt Steak differently now, that you would have given race more primacy of place in your analysis of women in kitchens. Like how would you go about doing so if you were starting to write that book today? Um, yeah, when I, when I wrote Skirtake, I was, I was clueless, like, and honestly, in so many ways. I mean, I'd never written a book before. Um, but I think, I think it was a combination of, of immaturity and lack of confidence, but also that, that kind of ignorance when you're aware of your ignorance and you decide to work around it instead of tackling it head on. Um, and there was also, honestly, there was just this my fundamental lack of understanding of the history of feminism in, in this country, in the United States and how white it's been. Um, so I was really idealistic and naive in a few ways. I thought at that point, I, I thought any form of feminism benefited all women and that's just not so. That's not how it works. Um, and over the past few years, I've learned that if it's not inclusive, it isn't feminism. And I also, the other kind of I don't, I don't, it's not so much that it was naive, but it's a very kind of linear academic kind of thinking, I think. Um, I kind of thought that I could provide a template, like a, a methodology with, with the book that you could then apply to other professions, to other disenfranchised groups, you know, in those industries. Um, and that was what I noted in, in the introduction, you know, that as a heterosexual cisgender white woman, I felt personally, I felt like I wasn't equipped to do the level of analytical work I wanted to in, in the areas of race and sexuality or gender identification. But now, but you know, now I look back on it and I'm like, that's bogus because all I needed to have done was what I was doing anyway, which was just start with the women themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the book is, is grounded in the experiences and then, and the voices of the chefs who were included and I interviewed 73 of them. So if I just take the time to include more women of color and black chefs, especially, and to ask the necessary questions of everyone, there's no reason it couldn't have included race. And uh, that's, of course, that's how I would do it now. Um, and I'd also negotiate more time in which to do it. 
so that I had the time to interview more people and, and, you know, like, and, and sit with it and parse everything. But yeah, I mean, that is, it's a huge, for me, it's a huge regret. I, I do actually still think that the, that the methodology thing holds up. I think it's something you can apply. Um, but I wish I'd done it myself in, in a more holistic and inclusive way. Definitely. Well, how long did you take to write that book? It was, I mean, I think it was really fast because my, I don't even remember by the time I signed the contract, it was after I'd started, but I knew that it was going to be due at the end of August in 2011. So I started working on it. I think I, I think I agreed to the deal at like the very end of December in 2010. So I just started immediately in January of 2011. So basically I did it between January and August of 2011. And to, you know, I traveled for it. So to interview that number of people to travel and then to process all of it and synthesize it into a book within that period of time, when I look back on it, I'm like, how did, how did I do that? Right. Yeah, (laughs) It was basically seven months. I did it in seven months and I can't imagine doing it that way now and feeling good about it, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm in that right now. My book is due July 1st, 2021. And I don't, I I expected to be able to travel for it and, and, and like I think that that's kind of having a, a detrimental effect on I mean <laughs> that in like time and money generally but like the idea of like I thought when I was writing the proposal for this book that I would go to places and like have all this like rich image like imagery and like atmosphere and yeah. and and personality to draw on to write this and like now I'm like wait how do I do it without that because it's a pandemic <laughs> so like um it's a, yeah. yeah it's also it's expensive I mean I yeah was not paid very much to do skirt steak and I definitely invested the fact that I traveled and did all that stuff I don't think that you know that might not have been the most um cost efficient thing but again I think because I I think because it was my first book I felt like it was important to try to interview as many of the the women in person as possible just to have that that sort of closeness you could you know in my mind I thought I can have conversations that are more that go deeper, that are more real. And so I went to, when I was doing cities where there was a multiple number of, of women, I would try and travel to them. But I have to say in hindsight, you know, I'm, I think now that I'm, that we, we do so many interviews remotely, even before right. the pandemic, right? Like we, I realized that it's not essential, but I do think in terms of like, I, so I just finished reading um, Isabel Wilkerson's cast and right. it's changed. It's, it's, it's had such a profound effect on me. I feel like I'm like one of the Oprah's book of the month. Like, <laughs> but I was one thing I was thinking about when I read it was just that the amount of time that she had. And also, I mean, the research that she did was it's astounding. And the traveling she did was astounding, but that, requires, you know, I wish all writers could be given that amount of time and could have 
the resources to do that because it, you know, it's, it, it's really, you read it and you're like, oh my God. But then you also realize it took years, you know? <laughs> and right. I feel like most book deals now, they want you to turn your book out in like these really short time spans. Right. And we do it, but then you look back and you're like, "How did I do that?" You know, <laughs> and, you, right. and you wonder what it would have been like if you'd had more time. And sometimes I think it's better to have less time, again, almost for cost efficiency, because it means you right. just kind of crank it out, and then it means you have more time to go back to doing other work that you get paid, you know, that you get paid for. Right. But but on the other hand, then I look at a book like. Cast. I mean, obviously, it's a special, it's an extremely special book, and she's an extremely just unique talent. Um, but you look at that and you do think, wow, like to have that much time and support to be able to go do that level of research and travel is just, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Right, right. No, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so, and <laughs> I mean, I think I can do I, the time thing for me, it's you, better to have short amount of time because I like, yeah, I, me too. I don't me like, too. I don't want to get lost in, in the woods, you know? And so, and you know, I want to focus on it and get it done. But at the same time, I just wish I had the resources and like the, <laughs> the global ability to like do some sort of research <laughs> yeah. that, that I had really intended to do. And like, it's funny because I've basically been doing research for this book already for a few years, I guess, um, kind of with other stuff I've been doing. Uh, but there's still so much I wanted to do. And like, I tried to convince the last time I had a publication offer me like, um, you know, to cover expenses and to like pay me a proper amount of money for a project. I was like, can I please go <laughs> to um, the farm in Tennessee, which is a commune where they still produce like tempeh spores that make like most of the tempeh, I think, in the United States. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And then also to San Francisco to go to Hodoboy where they make um, tofu and, and yuba and other soy yeah. stuff. So I was like, and I, and then there was some other thing I was going to stay in New York for, but I was like, please let me, um, I want to write about, I want to do a whole audio project on tofu, tempeh and seitan and go to these places. And, and, and I was like, this will be like really good as a project, but it also be really good research for my book and I'll have it actually like funded. But then they didn't want me to do that. <laughs> so of I'm like, How, why? Of course. Cause they, that's the thing. They're always like, but if you, we could get you to do a story for less money. Right. No, I mean, like, yeah, but, but that's my, my, so I'm an optimist about that stuff. And I'm like, but Alicia, that's an amazing, that would still be an amazing series. And the thing is that you can do the book you're doing now, and then maybe that will be your next book, or maybe having right. done this book, you'll get the opportunity to go do that. So I just look yeah. at it that way. Cause that like you, you have to, and because like the amount of information out there is unlimited and the way your brain processes it is always going to be like that unique thing. Right. So right. if you can't get it into this book, like that doesn't mean that's it, you know? Right. No, for sure. And that's a good way of looking at it too. Because yeah, I'm like, I, I'm trying to not be in despair about not being able to like go do the reporting I wanted to do. Um, because yeah, even when I was like on the call to like sell the book with the editor, I eventually went with. I was like, I, she's like, this is going to take reporting, and I was like, I love reporting. I'm excited to do it, and it's like I am excited to do it, but I'm like not excited to do it kind of virtually. Anyway, no. <laughs> there are but big, you can, there but are you bigger know, you problems. Can. There, there yeah. are. It's true. It's true. <laughs>
<laughs> um, that is true. But for Women on Food, the anthology that you you know was nominated for best book at the James Beard Awards, um, <laughs> yeah. you you also kind of had a wide array of voices. And what was your vision for that book, and how did you decide who to include there? Well, so for that book, most of all, I wanted I really wanted to make a case or a declaration that if if women were given the space and the freedom to write what we wanted to write, how we wanted to write write about it and and to talk about things that we don't get to openly, that we could produce something that was as good as or possibly better than what you see in so-called mainstream food media, which is why that part of me was proud when the book got nominated, right? Because right. it was like, oh, I guess on some level you could say that like the point, you know, the point was made. Um, but really I wanted to show that like analytical, critical thinking that, yes, things that mix genres together um, and just honestly creativity, that it makes right. for better reading and that and that women are more than capable of that and that we should be encouraged to do it. Um, and I wanted to do it in a way that was inclusive and somehow both no bullshit, but then warm. That felt like right. it kind of had a kind of a, a warmth to it. Um, and I really wanted to make sure that it felt like a safe space for the women who were involved. So that was sort of like my overall thinking just going in. Um, I also really did not want it to be a traditional anthology. The way my brain works is that if you're, if you're going to challenge a type of writing, like if, if I was going to go in and challenge what food writing was, then I felt like the container it was in, right? Like the format, then that should also be messed with, right. you know, like, and it was like a little bit meta, but you know, that, that if you're going to do that, then if the box you put it in feels just as sort of confined and, you know, generic, then what, what have you actually accomplished? Um, right. And I also, the, the same way I'm, I'm not really into awards. Um, I'm not into that typical anthology scenario where it's like, this is the best of this genre. Right. Um most of the time it's like, what does that mean? And then you right. look at what the criteria for it is. It's a lot of like a lot of sociological and cultural bias. And, right. and you, and again, as I complained about before, you just, you, again, you see like a homogeneity in the work. So um, I really liked this idea that you, you weren't choosing the work, you were choosing the writers and saying, no, really, like, let's try and do something that like you haven't been allowed to do before, or just what do you really want to write about? Um, so that you go, you know, we could, we could mess with that. And then, um, I wanted it to be a mix of, of essays, but also not essays. Like my, right. my vision for it was, is there, a, could there be an anthology you would want to take to the beach? What right. would that look like? What, <laughs> what would it be? Um, and then, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about, for me, for writers, it's funny that, so I anchored it with the essays. Like that was sort of before. That was like, you know, getting the essayist on board for me, even just psychologically for knowing that like things were moving along and under control. That was that was where I felt like I just needed to start. And it was funny. I, I it was very organic in that I was like, well, before I start like doing the mathematics of who should be in here or what, you know, like what the, what the demographic breakdown is. Haha, ha, beards. Sorry. <laughs> I. 
I um, just was like, well, who do you, who do you like reading right now? And I had a list of, of, first of all, I've noticed that the, well, two things I noticed while making my list. Number one, I really seem to gravitate towards women's food writing right now. I don't know if this was always true, but definitely right now. Um, most of the food writing that I like, and of course there are exceptions, are you know happens to be written by women. But I also realized that most of, of the stuff I really wanted to read and the writers I was gravitating to happened to be um, Black women and women of color. So that actually, that made it in a funny way, just the whole thing very organic for me because coming from Skirt Steak and being very aware of the lack of inclusivity there, women on food for me, it had to be inclusive or else I did not want to do it. And it, it's for, I, it was nice to be like, I just have this list of writers I love and I don't have to start thinking about like some kind of quota thing or something. It's literally just, this is, these are the writers I really would like to have. Um, and then you, you also had the you also had, you know, the issue of how many essays can I have? How many, how many essays does the book need? How many are too much? Also, how much can I afford? Like how much can I, can I afford in terms of how much money I have and what I'm paying everyone? So I just kind of was like, okay, I think I can, you know, afford like 13 essays. And so I just started with the third, you know, the 13 writers, that I that I most wanted to to read uh, there was you know my list was longer than I had essays for um but I just kind of started with 13 and then I was really lucky because they all said yes off the bat but then we had we had two drop out early everyone was very responsible and gracious with their dropping out so I don't want to make it sound like people were delinquents they were not <laughs> um and then again it was really easy for me to fill the slots because I had I had more people I wanted than room. So it was, you know, and I just got lucky. I still think I was so lucky that people said yes and that they said yes so readily. Like I still kind of can't get over that. I remember every time someone saying yes, being actually slightly floored just because it was like, this is an experiment, you know, like I, it, it doesn't, there's, it doesn't exist already out there and I can't mm-hmm. tell you what it's going to be. Um, but I know what I want it to be, but I also know that what I want it to be is going to be shaped so much by the people who contribute to it. That's like a hard thing to, to qualify or even, you know, when you're trying to explain what a project is going to be. Um, so that was, that was, I was just really lucky. It was literally like, these are the people I love to read. Like, okay, let's see if they want to, you know, do an essay. And it was like, wow, (laughs) it's like everyone's at a party in like one place. And then, you know, the questionnaire was, was very much like, okay, you need to send this questionnaire out to way more people than you know are going to respond. And the questionnaire was how you get all those outtakes in the book, right? Like all of those, you, you know, the question that's thrown out and then you get this, all of these different responses to it. That came from all of these women filling out questionnaires that I sent that were huge, as you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, so I, I knew that not everyone would respond. And I also, my, what I wanted was people to only respond to the questions that they felt compelled to answer. You know, like if a question left out at you, that was what I wanted you to answer. And so that meant sending it to a lot of people and then knowing that you are probably going to get maybe half 
of those back. And then that would sort of dictate that everyone's responses would dictate what that content would be. And that was interesting because again, it was organic and it started with me being like, who would I like to have fill out a questionnaire? And also it was, it was the part of the book where one of the parts of the book where it was, I wanted food writers, but it also meant I could ask people from other areas of the food world. You know, I could ask chefs, I could ask food entrepreneurs, I could even ask publicists. Um, And so sort of kind of figuring out that balance. And then this was interesting too. I am part of um, some, this Facebook group that's like, it's food, women food writers that someone started a very long time ago, I think. And people, I do not like this group. People up there are always <laughs> posting, like, basically trying to get other food writers to do their homework. Like, basically being like, hey, all for a story on the best hot dogs in Arkansas, what are your picks? And I'm like, wait, are you being paid to do that? Because, like, hi, <laughs> what do you think our job is? And we're just supposed to, like, start feeding you our favorite hot dogs in Arkansas. Anyway, part of this group, I thought I'm part of this group. This is, I should reach out to these women. Like this is perfect. So I, I put up a post of how I was working on this book and like, who was anyone interested in being part of it and filling out a questionnaire. And I got all of these women responding, which was great because it was a lot of women I actually didn't know. And I ended up getting to know them because of the book. And that was, I actually loved that. But what I realized was, I was like, wow, everyone, all of these people are white. And I realized in this moment that this Facebook group, I don't really know why. I don't think it was, it it definitely wasn't deliberate. It just wasn't, there was a lack of consciousness about it. It was just all white women. Um, Mm -hmm. They themselves basically just realized this, by the way, a few months ago. And they're they're now, we're now, it seems like it's expanding. But so after that, I was like, oh, okay, wait now, you've got to balance this out because you now have all of these these white women who just agreed to do the questionnaire and anyone who does it is going to be included. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, you, can, you know, you can't do it um, now that you said yes. So then, you know, I already, I had had in my mind what felt like a pretty diverse group of women but at this point it was like now we're oversaturated with white women like truly and so Mm -hmm. then I was like okay you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna start from the really obvious but such a useful resource um equity at the table and I'm gonna branch out from there and that was and then I and I did that because again I was like I'm not I don't want a book that is just about the perspective of white women like I've already done that and it's just not what I want like that's not right. what this is meant to be um so that was interesting that was interesting because the essay thing had gone so just really was so organic and flu- you know fluid that it right. wasn't something I had to consciously think about in the same way but for the questionnaire I found myself having to be more focused on it just because I realized that, yeah, there are so many white women in food <laughs> media and in the food world. Like there, there really are. It's, and yeah. it's not to say that there aren't women, uh, you know, that there aren't women of color and black women. It's just, there are so many white women. Right. Right. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Yeah. No, there's, I've been in a food writers group, like the food binders or whatever, but I think that's a different group. But that that one has had yep. so many freaking like I don't know drama uh, aspect and like and and so many splinter groups that have had to form. Um, 
as a result of the drama. And it's like, I just don't, I just don't mess with it anymore. Like it, when I was an editor at Edible yeah. Brooklyn and Manhattan, like it was useful to be like, put out a call for pitches or whatever. But again, there was so much, there were circumstances where it was like, I was trying to, and I mean, I don't know. I was trying to suggest like that I wanted like a writer from Crown Heights for like some specific story and that I didn't want it to be a white person, but you would still get like people yeah. who went white women who would be like, well, I've lived in Crown Heights for three years. Like, is that not <laughs> enough? And I'm like, I'm like, no, it's not enough. Like you're not bringing the context that yeah. I want to this story. And like, and, but like that is, Oh, it's just endless. That sort of reaction. It's and, endless, like, and it's also, and it makes you feel, it makes you feel self-conscious too because you're like I feel like I'm doing some sort of really strange form of central casting and that's not (laughs) how this should be working like it's just you know it just doesn't again it's like you just want it to be organic it's like you I wish I mean I wish I had the kind of mental Rolodex where it's like I already knew that person in Crown Heights you know that's that's the thing but but we work in a field and a society where it's gonna take a while for that person to be someone that everyone just knows. Right. You know, right. but exactly that's why we, you want to assign the piece to them too. Like it's, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. I mean, really navigating all, all of these people's crap all the time is like very <laughs> exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and also, you know, that thing where you, when, when the, the white person who's like, I lived in, in Crown Heights, you know, why, you know, if for three years, why doesn't that count? It's like, you also, you don't want to be rude to that person and you also don't want to start giving them a sermon. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's also that too, which can become exhausting where it's like, I shouldn't have to explain this to you. Right. Right. And then you think, should I take the time to explain it to that person? Like, is that a good thing to do? Should I let it go? You know, like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. it's always that it's always like, is it worth it to explain to this person why they're wrong when they're coming at me kind of aggressively about you know yeah and it's like I'm just trying to do a job I'm not getting paid enough for this but um <laughs> like <laughs> no. I know what is that phrase like this is above my pay grade like yeah yeah it's just, yeah it's that but there's so much and like people talk about the emotional labor that men demand but like if you're in these groups um the emotional labor <laughs> and and like the literal labor the literal like intellectual labor that is demanded sometimes is just excruciating it's just you know it's like uh, anyway but yeah so many people don't do the work it's themselves weird. which is yeah <laughs> um, but that, but you, to me that really frustrates me yeah right yeah that these people it's like where where what rock do you live under that you don't understand all of the what what's going on in the world but then you know what happens you know no but you know what I realize is that someone puts out the call for the for the best hot dogs in Arkansas and and people do respond and, yeah. and then those are the same people that will then go on and ask everyone for a recommendation for you know, the best falafel in like Wyoming. So I see that there's a certain thing where it's almost like they're all on the same wavelength. Right. But that's just not something I really want to be part of. And so, yeah. (laughs) No, I don't want to be on that late wavelength anymore (laughs) either. Luckily, I feel like I've gotten (laughs) off that that particular hamster wheel. But (laughs) I I feel like you have. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but you've been writing about food for so long now, and 
often discussions on social media lack real nuance or not big on looking backwards. Like for me, it's been really interesting to do, I don't know, to just do deeper research before you just announce something or, or I don't, I mean, maybe you can talk more to this too, but like the way that everything has become so shallow and the way ever it's like so many people who are just dependent on like $200 garbage um, that like that becomes what people think of as food writing now. Um, But, you know, are there books or magazines or, you know, writing or resources that you wish people talking about food right now would go back to in like what, how would you tell people who want to have a more like well-rounded picture of the genre? What would you tell them to look at? Um. This oh no! Is this is like a, a rant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this answer by saying it's it's sort of not a good answer, and it it's kind of gonna make me feel like a hater or possibly a self hating food writer. But if I could send people a reading list with some older stuff on it, it would actually probably not include food writing or food ah, publications. Okay, um, yeah, but. There's a reason for it, and I actually think the reason is is interesting, and it kind of gets to why we're at the place we're at. Um, and I, I, this is my theory. I think it's the food as a cultural genre, or or really a pop cultural genre, right. like in the same vein as you look at art, music, film, television. It's really young, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's really immature. We're barely out of the like the lionizing profile with a PR news hook phase, you know. So right. the critical work, like capital C critical work in our field specifically is lacking because it hasn't had the time to develop. Um, so I think mostly like if you look at the like the so-called in quotes critical pieces, they've been limited to restaurant reviews. Um, and I'm not even sure how much of what we would actually label criticism like in the disciplinary sense or just there being any real critical thinking or even contextualizing applied even even applies to those restaurant reviews by the way um and I was thinking I was thinking about Jonathan Gold and how we celebrate him as a food critic but you you can love his way with words like you can love his use of language in his writing so much and you Uh can love the Los Angeles he wrote about, but like, I don't think you can say that was criticism, you know, like, right. and if you, and if you think that it was somehow countercultural, because he was writing about in quotes, again, other restaurants, like, forget the fact of his being a white guy, because it's honestly, that's, that's not my point here. But it's this line of thinking that suggests that if something is not part of white or Eurocentric culture, it's outside of culture in general, right. which I'm not cool with. So yeah, I look at that and I'm like, where's our legacy of cultural criticism and food? I think the good news is it's actually just starting to be written now. And I'm psyched for that. And I actually think your newsletter, like this is why I like the newsletter so much, because I that's where I see it it happening. Um, but personally, my my love of critical theory came from from studying film and more than anything else, modern art history. So it's very nerdy. And that's what I get off on. But that's what I would be sending people to read. um, Just so that you see it in a field where there's been a a rich history of critical thinking and critical work so that it's actually, you know, and you can see these generations of, of 
critics or philosophers um, like talking to each other. You can see how one builds on the other or rejects the other. Like you, you really get a sense of that. And we just, we don't have that. Um, and also I, for me too, um, I think some of the most beautiful food writing actually exists in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would make people read Monique Trong's novels, um, just because she gives you historical context, she gives you cultural context, and then and she gives you tension, and she gives you a this like pure love of food written in just you know the most poetic prose. So I I think I would send people off in those directions just because I don't I don't think we have enough of an archive in our own backyard um, for for people to necessarily even understand sometimes like what criticism or critical thinking looks like. And I think that's the kind of depth that we're, that we're missing. Um, So yeah, now I feel bad because I did, it's not, it's not so much that I want to trash food writing. It's just that I don't think, I don't think it's existed long enough in that same sense. Right. No, I feel this way so much. Like I, (laughs) this is, you're articulating a thing that I didn't, um, fully comprehend for the first few years that I was like a freelance food writer where I was like, oh, I'm going to because my idea about being a food writer, which started in like 2015 or whatever, um, where I was like, oh, I know all this stuff about vegan food and like all this cool stuff that no one writes about. And like um, I have this uh, understanding of what it's like to own like a small artisanal food business. And I have this understanding of like how power sort of functions in these, you know, cause I studied English literature. Like I, you know, my, yeah. my back and philosophy. So like my background is also similar though, not like to any sort of like um, incredible level. It's just like, I've, you know, I, I read all this theory in college cause that's what I was supposed to do. And so, um, and yeah. then I was like, I, you know, I'm going to bring this like new perspective to it and and I was like oh no one actually wants this <laughs> like um like I've no, always had it's it's really it's heartbreaking yeah right. no and I was I yeah I just and it's been years of like and like similar I guess to the James Beard Awards and like trying to get nominated but not getting nominated but like I've done all of my best food writing outside of food publications and and yeah mostly yeah most mostly <laughs> even for publications outside the united states like for a canadian literary website and for like a british-based um website and and stuff like that so like because and that's been a really interesting perspective to have too it's like oh the people who are letting me do the writing i want to do are not food publications and like so this year i've kind of like made my peace with that in a real way and it's like i've just yeah. stopped even pitching I, I just because it's I don't want to do it, you yeah. know, and it's like and the yeah. newsletter I started because I was like, oh, I want to be able to do, I don't know, mostly like personal essay or like just like random writing that I didn't have a place for. And it just kind of morphed into what it is. Um, but I, yeah, it's been really interesting to see that like so many people want more critical food writing and and just yeah the only people that anyone ever cites as like (laughs) are people that I'm like I I don't think they were doing anything that new or interesting you know um like you said like with Jonathan Gold where it's like yeah he was writing about restaurants that like the major critics weren't writing about and he was doing it in a way that was beautiful but like what real you know, criticism of there like was, yeah, what criticism yeah. was there? <laughs> yeah. There was no, you know, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't even like he would would necessarily compare 
one restaurant's version of a dish to another. Like it was just really a love letter to a restaurant every week. And that's, you know, that's a great, beautiful thing, but it's like, that's not criticism. That's not, you know, we're talking about something different. And, you know, I also just want to say, see, this is what happens. This is how you end up writing books because you get so frustrated (laughs) with the space that you're given literally and figuratively in like magazines and newspapers. And you're like, the only way I can both say these things or go deep in the way that I, that I want, I guess I'm just going to have to like make my own thing. So yeah, it's a newsletter or we want to do something like really deep in research, then it's a book. And it's like, I don't know, I I never thought I was going to write a book. Like it it wasn't something I thought I would one day do. It was more just like, but I want to say all this stuff and I want to learn about all this stuff and I want to hear from all these people. And like, I, I don't see how I can do that and make it analytical in any of the given you know, any of the given outlets that I'm supposed to be technically writing for. I don't see right. that. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, and that's how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I... You, yeah, it's just really frustrating. I, I for, for me, like, I, when I used to write for The Village Voice, like, that was the closest, I guess, I got to being able to do something interesting while still being under the rubric of, like, the food section. Um, but that space doesn't exist anymore either and I think every time I get interviewed about like the newsletter genre I'm like well it's kind of trying to replace the alt weekly I guess like and also just yeah create this space of like actual criticism where you know you engage with food and like and all the things that touch food and also bring in other aspects of culture which I don't yeah it's just it's really interesting to me and I I talk about this all the time I think how food is like siloed as its own thing with no like connection to art or film or or literature or anything like that and no. it's it's really no. frustrating <laughs> I mean I I think a lot of it comes back to uh, to money and what can be monetized and this right. idea that like food can only be monetized when it's seen as lifestyle capital L content mm-hmm. yep yeah, and then what, what that means is 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 that it has to somehow be in again. I, I feel like I put everything in quotes, but servicey, mm-hmm. and you know, and or what people would call fluff. Right. And so, if you want to try and go deeper, and that's why, like, even I look at the New York Times, and I'm like, why is it that I'll read what I think is a really fascinating food piece, but it'll be in the science section or the business section. And I'm always like, why could this not have been in the food section? (laughs) It would have been like, why? And I get so frustrated. And then I'm like, you got to stop. Like, you you know the answer and it's not changing and you need to like move on and get over it. But like, yes, it's it's that, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, and I, I've started to, I know you, you studied art history, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually I'm not I was I was an English major and an art history minor and okay. within my English major also did a weird film studies thing. It was it was very creative. Um, yeah. But I I decided it is like a whole side story, but yeah. I had this very kind of like reactionary response to my first job which was technically in corporate America and was like I don't want to be here. I want to be an art history professor and felt it like very, very strongly and decided that that's what I was going to do. And so um, I went to, I went and worked in an art gallery and then I went to graduate school, got my master's, got um, 
accepted as a PhD student at that point, knowing that I missed the real world too much, but that I also was part of this very like old fashioned kind of absurd program where once you get accepted to the PhD track, they have to take you back. Like at any, like I could be senile and knocking on the door and it'd be like, I'm here. And as long as I could pay tuition, cause like, I don't, I think at that point, like probably not, you know, going to be getting any funding, but like I could still come back. And I just, I liked knowing that in my mind, you know, if I, right. if I'd had some other life, I was like making a lot of money at my job and could like dream about retiring and getting my PhD just for like the love of learning when I was older. Like that would have been a great dream. Um, (laughs) But anyway, anyway, yeah, so that, so I did that. And then I, and then I went, technically went back to what was always my sort of first professional love, which was publishing and and magazines and journalism and writing. But yeah. So I had that and I'm 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 actually very grateful for it because it did help train how I how I think and how I look mm-hmm. at things. Um and it also really helped me hone my appreciation for visual culture and all right. of these things I think have ended up having a huge influence on my food writing. Like they're mm-hmm. so related um that it doesn't feel completely like it was useless. but yeah yeah well I mean you know I don't think education could ever be useless necessarily but I agree I agree (laughs) but it's not like you're learning you're not you're not learning like a trade or you know like in that sense it didn't you know right no, I, I was mean, never going to be. I would still love be... to teach, honestly. But... Ah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I actually I always it's funny because I have this vague memory of when I was in high school and wanting to go to like the Culinary Institute to study pastry, and this was like before. This was just based on like watching the Food Network and being like, I want to make humongous sugar sculptures, <laughs> like, and then um, uh, not yeah. doing that, and then all always kind of until I actually like actually accidentally became a baker, then like realizing like oh it was a better idea that I didn't do that like um I yeah yeah Yeah. like don't you love your baking now so much more than that like the idea even of a sugar sculpture right no and like I think I still probably would have ended up writing about food but I'm also like so happy that I have this education in something completely different from food um yes yes And like now all I read are art magazines, basically. And I feel like that's helped me write about food in a better way. Um, I don't it's know. So just- it's so helpful. Yeah. yeah. I even it's really funny. A small, a small thing that I noticed, like not just sort of like the theory and the way of looking at sort of like material culture, which I I found it really helpful for that. But even just like um I always used to think that it was kind of silly I remember I think I even said this to a professor and it was like you were not supposed to say this that you know you you were supposed to spend all of this time describing the work of art and Mm -hmm. I'm talking about like you would be you know writing a like an essay for a seminar and the thing is you would always be including the images in the in the work so I was like, but it's why am I describing it if you can see it? <laughs> it was I it used to like it really would get, you know, and then I realized, oh, this is actually like a kind of a discipline because it means that you're really looking at it. Right. Right. Um, and then that you're forced to find the language. And I realized that it, it actually comes in very handy when you have to describe food. 
because right. mostly you're you're actually kind of describing what it looks like because it's mm-hmm. so hard to describe flavor in a way that's going to be helpful to anyone but right. you can always describe what it looks like and so even that I look back and I'm like oh <laughs> okay <laughs> well um well to get back to like kind of the food media question you know what have all these recent yeah. kind of kerfuffles look like to you in terms of you know like Bon Appetit where we're having there's going to be the new editor Don Davis and and Peter Meehan leaving his job at the LA Times like was this all like very I don't know predictable to you um I don't you know what it wasn't predictable in the sense that I felt like after we went through the kind of me too wave um back in like what was it I feel like it was like at the end of 2017 right that like the Mario Batali Ken Friedman thing happened I was kind of like well what about food media right hello (laughs) no and then and then then it didn't happen and so I think I kind of was like kind of resigned myself so in that sense um I was like not expecting it and I also think it's interesting again to go back to this idea of like the the inherent whiteness of feminism as we've known it for so long right that me too was very much co-opted by white feminists and look in our in our field we were not able to get anything done and then I look at at what happened in terms of you know, Black Lives Matter, which I think had a huge impact on what we saw with, you know, with Bon Appetit right. and Adam Rappaport and a lot of conversations. And I'm like, yeah, look, look who made this happen. Like it was Black women and women of color mostly who spoke up. And, and you know, and it, that for me was really like, that, that made me feel both a kind of, um, awe and gratitude for all of those women, but also like very disappointed in, I mean, even in, in myself, I was like, right. well, so much for the, so much for the white women who dominate food media, look at what <laughs> we accomplished. Like, um, so that, you know, that was like, that was like a one sort of tangential thing that was going off in my head, but I was pleasantly surprised. But on the, you know, there's another part of me, like if I'm just looking at the the big picture of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think my problem with these dust ups is that they tend to focus too much on the personal or this like right. the singular person or the actors involved and then not enough on the systems that created them or got us to these situations right. as they are, you know? Yeah. Um, that's that is the thing that I wished we could somehow change that dynamic. Um I'm so glad for the upheaval and and I feel like I think that we need it. Um, mm-hmm. I realize that I'm very much of the 10 day way, let it die mindset yeah. now, um, <laughs> which I, I used to not be. I used to be very much that sort of like Trojan horse advocate, you know, like I used to think if you could infiltrate and change from within, you could really do something. And now seriously, I'm like, F that, like, yeah, <laughs> we need new models, we need a lot of them, and they need to be decentralized. And so right. yeah, my, my thing is more like, can we can we start having these upheavals in a way that feels like we're having a systemic conversation? And then I, my role like that, that is I have been like sitting on that and trying to figure this out. And it it even started, I think, before the pandemic, just coming off of having done women on food and being like, what am I supposed to do 
now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything that's happened in the past few months has really made me question that even more and in, and in different ways. But like, I think if you look at just in terms of like my, like my work, right. If you, if you look at skirt steak or women on food or even like the, the piglet tournament of cookbooks, mm-hmm. right. It's like, you can see a cry for help. <laughs> that's, that's the wrong way. It's the wrong way to say it. But you you can see someone who really is interested in in like the why of things right. and the underpinnings. And I sometimes like to to look at that in mischievous ways. Um, and I'm always like, how can we find other approaches to talk about stuff? And I think the nice thing about what's happening now, just personally, this is selfish, but it's like the fits for the first time, I feel less alone in that, you know? Right. Um, but I also, that's, I don't want to take up too much space and I right. don't want to take up the wrong space. So it's like, how do I keep doing that kind of work, but in a way where I'm giving the attention and agency to other people, not, you know, not taking it for myself. And I think that's, that's a thing that's that's like the negotiation right now. That's the hard thing to figure out. Right, right. No, I think it's hard for everyone right now <laughs> to be yeah, like, how do I fit into this dying industry? Um, yeah, it's complicated. And how do I make a difference? I mean, which right. is a corny thing to say, but it's like if I'm going to do it, I want it to have some impact or be like of use in some way. It's like right. I don't want to keep contributing to the, you know, to what we were talking about before, the sort of lifestyle stuff. Right, right. But on the other hand, I have to get paid, right? right. Like I need, to, <laughs> I need to get paid. So it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. And yeah, we, we're all talking about, it. I wish, I wish we could find ways to talk about it together more, right, like literally right. just like, how do we, you know, like for freelancers, I think, especially. Yes, for sure. No. And I mean, that's why I guess we had the food writers workshop um, for two years, yeah. but this year we had to cancel. I lo- that was so, so good. You'll do it again. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. This year we have to cancel, but you'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just to create that <laughs> space for like these conversations that can be difficult to have. Um, yeah, because I think it's necessary. And I mean, this year it would have been, yeah, if, if next time I guess we do it, it'll be quite interesting because of all of this. Um, and because yeah. we'll be we'll be in the midst of the sort of recovery, I guess, from what's happened. But um, yeah, so we'll be able to see it, I guess, with with better, uh, with clearer vision. Um, so I hope that, that that happens and that that's interesting for people still. But um well talking it will be yeah speaking of imagine (laughs) (laughs) speaking of like food media you know I talked to Lisa Donovan a couple of weeks ago and she was included in a piece you wrote for the Washington Post about kind of the whiteness of food memoir which you know I thought was a really necessary piece especially as someone I had it's funny that you even wrote it because I had bought like a million food memoirs and was like, I'm going to figure out what the hell's up with this genre because it is such a, <laughs> it, I was like, I'm going to read all of these books and then I'm going to figure out why food memoirs are like really, I don't know, just like something just all the same. Like, like you're talking about before with the homogeneity of like the, the way the beards do things and the way like the media, you know, how, how do we break out of this mold? Um, I do think that Lisa's memoir, like our, our lady of perpetual hunger is like a really fresh addition um, to the genre, but you know, her, the, it did create a lot of um, 
uh, <laughs> talk on Twitter, that piece, um, a lot of which I think was completely yeah. misguided and and totally incorrect and, and total misreadings of what you were trying to do. Um, but, you know, Lisa's critique was that there, it was short on class analysis. So what would your response be to that? Yeah. Um, it was concerning to me and not because I don't think there's a glaring issue with a right. socioeconomic disparity or class dominance in book publishing and in food media. There, there clearly is. Like, I would never argue that. Like, there is. Right. Um, but, but it was concerning because that was a piece that was primarily about white privilege and about mm -hmm. race. And as soon as you start saying, but wait, wait, what about socioeconomic privilege as a white person saying that, whether you're doing it as a way to justify your own work or to devalue someone else's, or even if you're looking at it systemically, what you're doing is decentering the conversation. Right, right. You're you're taking the focus away from race and you're shifting the conversation so that in this particular case, it no longer calls attention to the idea that that black women and women of color are not being given the opportunity to tell their stories and right. are not getting memoir deals. Um, one of my friends actually said to me, which was like a very strong statement, um, when the discussion is about race, you have to be absolutely destitute for poverty to erase white privilege, which right. that really struck me. Um, and again, as I said, I just finished reading Cass. So like it's very fresh in, in my mind. Um, and by the way, that would go on my reading list, even though it's contemporary. Um, <laughs> um, but it, it really underscored that point for me, which is, you know, in the United States, race is the defining marker of caste. And class is fluid, but caste, like race, is fixed. So I don't see this as like a chicken egg dilemma. I think it's always going to be race first. And I think it definitely needs to be right now in these conversations. And when you see a white person push back against that, even when they have the best of intentions and, and otherwise, I think, seemingly clear-eyed understanding of how things work, um, for me, I think you're basically witnessing a form of white fragility. So that's disappointing, obviously. But on the, you know, it also makes me think about where my own white fragility is coming into play now, or how it might in the future. Because truly, like we're all we're all trying to self-correct and be right. better, and it's an ongoing process. So, like that is something I also understand. But yeah, to, for me, that was upsetting. And then also, okay, <laughs> this idea that that somehow my being privileged needed to be addressed or made me ineligible to write about white privilege in, in memoir publishing. I, I get how it could be confusing for people who think that food writing is, is personal, like by default right. or who are taking it personally as readers. Um, I am extremely aware of my privilege and in real life, I'm actually, I'm very, very open about it. And I'm also pretty open about how my career has benefited benefited from it and how also how I've been able to sustain my career because of it. Um, but I, if you look at my work as a writer, I don't, I don't do personal writing. Like, right. <laughs> I don't think I'm that interesting. I don't think my life's that interesting. Um, or alternatively that, that I'm a gifted enough writer to make it seem like it's that interesting. Um, which is why 
in related news, I haven't written a memoir and I'm <laughs> not probably going to write a memoir ever, but it's just, it's not what drew me to writing or journalism. So I don't write about my privilege in my work because there's no place for it in non-personal writing. Or yeah. I, I don't know, like I, it, this whole thing made me think about it. And I was like, oh, where would I have included this information? And then like, should there have been like a disclaimer at the bottom of the piece that read, you know, Charlotte Druckmann is a daughter of privilege from Manhattan. Like where, where, <laughs> where is one supposed to, you know, to me in the context of that piece, it just really didn't seem relevant right. because it was about white privilege and also because it was about memoirs. I right. didn't write a memoir. So that, you know, that's the kind of thing where you find yourself feeling like I shouldn't even have to defend this or explain it. But you realize that we live in a world where at some point you have to because that's what people seem to want to focus on instead of focusing on the actual piece and what it was trying to say. Right. No, I thought it was really interesting, especially um this this Friday's interview with Clancy Miller, the timeline of this interview now is all over the place. But um, she says that when <laughs> before she proposed cooking solo, she proposed a, a food memoir about her time in Paris that was rejected by 30 publishers. And I was like, well, oh I think Clancy Miller's food memoir about Paris would be really f- a really interesting infusion into a genre that is so white that yeah. loves France, but doesn't like the, the, you know, it loves the story of an American in Paris, but apparently not a black woman American in Paris. And yeah. so, yeah. and it's, it's like, and so many people who argued in response to that piece were just all over the place for one. Um, but also, yeah were citing memoirs, like being like, I think lots of, you know, people of color have had memoirs out and it's like chef memoirs and, and that sort of thing. And like, like yeah. being like, these have all Some come out recently. Some of them were memoirs. Right, yeah. right. Some were, which, which is a, uh, something I observed, which is that I've noticed that when um, women of color and black women, instead of seeming to get memoir deals, they get cookbooks where right. – that are personal. And I wonder, I wonder if that's a publishing tick where that's being thrust upon them. Like, I don't, I don't know, but I found that people were holding up things where I was like, but that's a cookbook. That's not a memoir. And that's the, that's also, you're proving my point. You don't even, (laughs) you don't even realize that you're proving my point, but you are. And, um, yeah, it's the, it's the pigeonholing. It's the, it's the sort of, place where erasure and pigeonholing overlap right yeah so it's like and it it makes me think of you know Christina Gill and tasting Rome and how you know it was kind of like well we're we're not as your publishers who bought your book which was your idea we're not comfortable with a black woman being the face of Italian cooking, but we're very comfortable with your with your white co-author doing that, which was right. unsaid, but I think very much what happened. And to me, that's very similar to all of those publishers being like, well, we like the Paris food memoir thing, but we're not feeling the black woman writing it. You know, like mm-hmm. it's the, it's that same kind of thinking. And right. Yeah, it's just, this was also crazy to me because 
I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic, the books actually would have come out within five months of each other. Like it was, Mm -hmm. it was, I don't, I don't think I have seen seven food memoirs come out in one year before this ever anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. That's already seems like a lot. And then the fact that, and there, you know, that we had seven and they were all written by women seems like a big deal because that also, you know. And then it's the fact that they were all white was like, oh, God, you know, like, oh, no. Um, And it was funny because at first, you know, when I first started paying attention, I was more sort of just like, why are there all all these memoirs? And then I started looking at, like, all the authors and I was like, oh, my, like, what is happening? This is just. You know, and it yeah. and it ends up being indic- indicative of how book publishing works, or at least food slash book publishing works. And yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't expecting that pushback because again, I have a certain I realize this that I'm I'm naive in certain ways where I don't think of myself as a controversial person or a right. controversial writer. So like I I just I don't know what I what I <laughs> what I thought would happen, but I wasn't I just didn't expect that. Um, I thought I was almost writing about something that to me seemed obvious, you right. know, and I thought it was important for a white person to say it because again, like I think it's been made really clear that it's like, why does it always have to be, you know, BIPOC who are having to carry the weight of pointing all this stuff out and right. then ultimately being ignored, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, in that sense, it was like, but I, but I thought it was pretty obvious. Um, the interesting thing was that all that Twitter stuff, if you look at it, it was mostly coming from white women, mm-hmm. um, which I found really interesting and and sad um, on a certain level. And I almost felt like it was like white women policing other white women about how to be white women. It was like, yeah. I almost felt like I'd, broken rank or something you know, I think- like, yeah, like, yeah and that was before I read cast and now that I've read cast I really am like wow it's, it's really like I broke rank like I you know didn't stay in some place I was supposed to stay in being accepting of a certain status quo I don't know but I just yeah I was really I was not expecting that response like at all right. Yeah. And I mean, I do think class analysis is required, especially in, in publishing and media, because it is it is a yeah, it's complicated for me to talk about because it's like I don't feel like I I, I came from like a, a super privileged background. And so it's like I feel like I had to kind of bust my way into this. But like even the fact that I was able to bust my way into it is a fact of of great privilege. And so um, you know, even though, you know, the only time I was able to take a magazine job was because I like finally someone offered more than like twenty eight thousand dollars. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's it's a it's really needs it needs to be part of the conversation. But I think that it is true that when you're when you're writing explicitly about race that um it that should be able to be the focus um but it is it's so complicated and yeah. and everyone brings so much it needs, to- I think it should be it, it I think it should be addressed I just I think you have to do it separately and I think I think when you 
And I understand because you, it's like, that's my memoir. I wrote that memoir. I put all of this into it. I worked so hard to get to a place where I could write that memoir. Like, I understand that. But when you start being like, but wait, but wait, because this is what happened to me and my story. And it's not fair that you didn't talk about, you know, socioeconomics. It does, it, it doesn't, that's not right for this scenario where this is about whiteness. The, the bottom line is that you did get your book deal <laughs> and that we're talking about your whiteness in this context. And like, right. that's, that's this conversation. And, but I definitely agree that yes, we have to, we do. I mean, I look at how lucky I was just like it's even I look at my my very like for me everything started with privilege like everything Mm -hmm. let's just forget like my education and you look at like my my resume of where I went to school and all of that stuff but even my first job in publishing was I had just graduated high school and my favorite relative who she was my my dad's mother's um, first cousin. So I think of her as a great aunt, but like technically Mm -hmm. she's like a cousin with some removings. I never, I'm not good with the once, twice removed stuff. Um, (laughs) But she was the the special assistant. She like ran the office of New York Magazine for the then editor-in-chief who is Ed Kozner. And so I got to be an intern at New York Magazine at age 18. That's ridiculous. And of course, I I wasn't paid, which was fine because I'm from New York City and I lived at home under my parents' roof. So I didn't have anything to pay for. Well, I didn't have to pay rent, you know. And you just look at that and you do know who the other intern was that summer? It was Ed Kozner's stepdaughter. (laughs) And there we were in our in our internships. And you know, you know, it was I learned a ton. I actually, you know, I, I did a lot of I worked hard, you know, but like just that. Look at that. That's how it started. And then look mm-hmm. at everything that happens after that. Even just so then that's on your resume. Look at everything. Like, forget the fact that it, it, that that publishing in general tends to be about connections, and it can right. be about connections that you had even before you started as a professional. And then once you start, it's always about like who knows who. Right. Absolutely. And then you get like, it's so it's the the whole thing is so, and you're, it's, it's operating on a very low paid salary for most people until then you get to the level of like Adam Rappaport and his golfing and all of that (laughs) stuff. But in order to, and, and, you know, and, and by the way, that's someone who also had already come from privilege. So Mm -hmm. like, Yes, it's a, it's 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 a disaster. It's a full on disaster. And like so yeah, we do need to talk about it, but that when you're when you're having a conversation about white privilege, it's not the time to raise your hand and be like, but can we talk about socioeconomics and how hard it was for me to do this thing? Like you it's just not the place right. for that. Even though I understand it completely. Like yeah. No, yeah, I, I, just, I mean, just for everybody (laughs) who is reading or (laughs) when I was in college, I couldn't do any internships because they didn't pay. And I, I commuted to school in New York City from Long Island and like I had to have a regular job to pay to commute. 
And then when I like graduated college because I'd never done an internship and I was like, oh, but I'm just going to apply for all these like editorial assistant jobs to work in book publishing. And then I'd never even got an interview. But also when they put the the rate there, it was like $28,000. And it was like, are you kidding me? And I yeah. went to work at some sort of, I worked in the publications department of like an offshore Caribbean medical school <laughs> because they had their offices. <laughs> yeah. And because I knew I like, because in college I had done work doing web design, like, and then doing web design, that's how I like made, started to make more than minimum wage was because I, I learned how to do web design. And then, um, my, when I got fired from that job, which I got fired from when I was 22, because I don't know, I just hated it. And I like, my parents got divorced and I was just sad. And then I got brought into the office and they were like, you don't seem to care about this job. And I was like, you know, I don't. And so they fired me. <laughs> Um, and then like, literally, I got hired at actually funny enough, New York magazine as a freelance copy editor, like a month oh, later. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, I got hired there they paid me $20 an hour when I started but I was working 10 hours a day and then I got hired full-time at the end of 2009 and just stayed there till I started writing uh in 2015 but like they and uh th I, I was still working like 10 hours a day for like the first two or three years I was there so I was like still in this position of like well I'm finally at a magazine so I can't say anything and like, but I was getting paid like $45,000 yeah. and working, you know, 50 hours a week, sometimes more when it was fashion week. Yeah. So it's like, this is what and this also, industry I'm, is. Yeah. And I'm yeah. guessing too, though, you were surrounded by people who were full time. Yeah. And who were coming from a place where they did not have to hustle that no. much and no. didn't have to hustle as much at New York Magazine either. Right. No, like, I mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love the job because I was able to eventually when I was hired full time and then I was able to work from home. So it was like, all right, great. Like, <laughs> I love this. Um, but yeah, it was it was this feeling of like, I'm not allowed to say anything. And when I actually right before I quit, I was starting to finally feel comfortable and like was like, I'm going to go talk to HR about all this sorts of stuff. And you know, how there's no movement for copy editors here and, and that sort of thing. But like, it was just stupid. And I just left. Um, and I, I went to be a copy editor at Food and Wine for a little while, which was also bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, worked, yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, so I worked at Food and Wine, but I, I worked at Food and Wine before you got there. Like I was there from 2003 to 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it was, it was not a fun time. So yeah, I had a six month contract there and I was like, at six months, I was like, yeah. goodbye. <laughs> it's like, I'm done. Um, yeah. Well, uh, for you, don't you is think, like maybe, no, no, go on. I was on. just going to ask you though, don't you, don't you think that the copy editing experience has made you though better at your job now? Cause I, I feel like there's not enough like, first of all, there aren't enough copy editors out there and there's not enough emphasis placed on like how important copy editing is. But so I just feel like it would probably make you a better writer and a better editor anyway, you know, like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I end. think I hope so. I mean, it's yeah. funny today. I was like, oh, I should create start a style guide for the newsletter. And I was like, what a nerd. But I, I still have like. <laughs> I, I really do. I love copy editing. It's I get to do it sometimes um, for for print magazines, and it's always 
a fun experience to get back into those shoes. But then it's not a fun experience when I get back into the shoes of like writers who think I'm an idiot <laughs> because um, that's also a thing, which is like, and talking about cast, like I, someone wrote a great piece for the New Republic like years ago about like the cast systems in publishing <laughs> and like how copy editors are kind of like the bottom, even though copy editors are the ones who know how language works and how grammar works. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, like, it's, a, it's true. It's, same with, same with fact checkers. Like now yeah. that I think about it, I feel like they weren't even invited to our editorial meetings no. at magazines I worked at. Like this is just a curse of me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. But you know, for you is cooking a political act? It's, it's funny. Cause you know, I'm not sure how much I used to think about this, but yes, like now, once for me, once you start thinking about this question, I don't see how the answer is no. I'm just going to say that. I think, yes, it's it's a political act because even when you think it's not, you know, where where did you buy your groceries? Which ones did you buy? Um, do you only eat what you grow yourself? Maybe you're not going and buying anything. You know, how are you growing them? And then how are you making those decisions? And if you weren't thinking about where your ingredients came from or the labor involved in getting them here. You're part of the problem, but doesn't make it any less political. Um, you're still contributing to an, to an overall process of culture or shopping or producing and cooking. So you're still part of that system and you're upholding it. You know, when you're in your kitchen stirring your pot, I don't think that's like necessarily political in the same way. Um, unless you're trying to make a statement with that food for whomever you're serving it to or selling it to or or if you're supporting a cause with it. Um, but I think if you're cooking commercially where it's like an exchange of money or goods and transactional, again, that it, it can't not be political. Um, but like me at home with my experimental baking, I don't see the part where I'm actually like, you know, <laughs> making my batter and putting it in the oven that's to me that's where it stops being political because it's it's no longer part of that exchange right but in right. the sense of like the buying ingredients and choosing and all of that stuff like yes it's political yeah well thank you so much charlotte for coming on this was great <laughs> who knows what i said but i had a great time and <laughs> i loved talking to you so um awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and doing this with me. Thanks.